This is The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Earlier this month, and we talked about it here on the podcast, Joe Biden notched up a big victory, passing his infrastructure bill, some trillion dollars of spending on roads and bridges. A big achievement, not least because he not only managed to unify his own troops, getting all Democratic wings to vote for it, but he also managed to bring over 13 Republican members of the House of Representatives to vote for it too. Now, these were not the usual suspects, liberals who were anti-Trump or critical of the former president. On the contrary, these were down-the-line conservatives who voted to bring more roads and bridges to their own districts. The response has been fierce. The entire wider Republican movement has come down heavily on those dissenting 13 members, with the charge led by Donald Trump himself, who has been quick and fast to denounce them for what many of those Republican hardliners have billed as a kind of betrayal. What does this tell us about where the Republicans are right now? To figure that out, I spoke to Tara Setmayer, who has been a guest on this podcast before, and is a former Republican communications director on Capitol Hill. So she knows this landscape really well. She's a political commentator who's been following closely the journey of her former party. And I began by asking why it was spending on infrastructure, of all things, that had triggered this huge battle inside the Republican Party. This is a a fascinating conversation because infrastructure has been one of the most elusive political prizes for the last few years. And it became almost the butt of many jokes in America uh, during the Trump administration that we were finally getting Infrastructure Week. We call it Infrastructure Week. We're actually calling it Infrastructure Week in this administration. Since it's Infrastructure Week, I'm wondering if the president... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Is it Infrastructure Well, Infrastructure Week never happened in the four years under Donald Trump. Uh, because there was no sense of bipartisanship on any major legislation, really. So when President Biden was able to accomplish this, there were several Republicans on both the House and the Senate side who decided that it was best for their constituents to support this large infrastructure bill that hasn't been done in, in several decades, frankly. So it really wasn't some type of rebellious act for Republicans to support this. Some of the Republicans in the House uh, names like Congressman Van Drew in New Jersey, Chris Smith in New Jersey. These are people who normally vote with the party line, but the state of New Jersey, just like New York and, and others, are in desperate need of federal funding to help crumbling infrastructure projects in their state. That's one example of of uh, members who would normally vote straight party line that said, I'm sorry, but this is too important to our constituents. We can see it was four from New York and two from New Jersey mm-hmm. who were among those 13. So it does go to this point that it was states that just really need some basic repairs done that voted for this. Uh, but so those Republicans just saw that. And as you say, in the politics of the past, not only would that have been completely normal, but it was almost what you were expected to do if you were in Congress. You were meant to go to Washington and come back with pots of cash 
to spend in your state. And it was, you know, part of the joke of pork barrel politics right. that no congressman or senator would ever say no to a bridge or a highway uh, or a tunnel, often named after them, that they had delivered from Washington, D.C. So, so those 13, presumably, they believe they were just doing what normal politics was always about. And it's the party that's changed rather than them. Uh, that's fair. You know, any any member of Congress would brag about bringing home the bacon to their district. That's changed a little bit where they found other ways to do that. But this is an example of where it really does benefit the entire country, not only in the direct infrastructure projects, hard infrastructure, but it creates jobs. So it was quite baffling after years of, of Republicans who were supportive of infrastructure during Trump now turn around and decide that, oh, they no longer would they support infrastructure because it was President Biden, even if it helped their own constituents. I know this day matters to you as well. I know you're tired of the bickering in Washington, frustrated by the negativity. Tell us what the reaction has been across the country and in their in, in their districts for those 13 who did, as, as we've, both of us have been saying, what would have been absolutely normal in American politics just a matter of years ago. So the fascinating thing about this is um, how many of the Republican base, some of the primary voters, the real rabid, dedicated base, are actually criticizing these members. And and Donald Trump himself came out and said that these members should be primary. And primarying, of course, refers to the primary battle, that internal selection contest that happens in every political election where the party chooses their own candidate. Even though... They have been loyal to him and his interests for the majority of the time, which is unheard of. It's 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 almost unheard of for a a former president to be this involved at this level. But we've seen that this is these are extraordinary times. And there is some internal debate within the party about what to do. Do they continue to listen to what Donald Trump wants or do they do what is politically smart, which is you support your incumbent? Yeah, this is new territory. And as you've been saying, these are not people who are, as I said at the top, you know, usual suspects in the sense of people who from the beginning, in a kind of Mitt Romney way, were opposed to what Donald Trump was doing in terms of rule of law, or some of his attacks on minority communities. These are people who are with Donald Trump, ideologically, even actually who did not vote for his impeachment after the 6th of January insurrection. And Trump and his supporters have been unforgiving. They've they've not given those people any credit for their previous support for Trump. Just even voting, as you say, for a bridge or tunnel in their own district is bad enough to make them sort of non-persons in Trump world. Right, which goes to show you that the only qualification in today's Republican Party is the your your level of fealty to Donald Trump. That's not the characteristic of a functioning political party that actually is serious about governing. So those battles are happening. We've been talking about the backlash against those 13. Tara, give us a sense of the of the scale of this backlash and particularly the kind of viciousness of some of the language, because this is not just mild political rebukes. This is a pretty serious pressure these people, these 13, have come under. Yes, the unfortunate part of this is that it's um, you know intra-party, internecine fighting. When you have these more extreme members of Congress who have now taken a, a front row seat, really, in the day-to-day of the Republican Party, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, Madison Cawthorn, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, these are people who 
years ago, would a never have been elected to Congress, never mind be uh, front and center now as leaders in the party. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene chided all 13 for supporting Joe Biden's, quote, communist takeover of America, end quote. The Post lists the phone numbers for each of the crossover congressional Republicans. Calling these 13 members uh, similar to communists and socialists and traitors, a really, really loaded language that's completely inappropriate. You know, when I worked in Congress, there were always, you always have different factions within the party. Some are more conservative, some are more moderate, some are social conservative, some are fiscal conservative. I mean, you, you know, you always had factions within the party, but you never saw this level of vitriol hurled at other members of Congress at this level. So it's pretty loaded, it's pretty outrageous, but yet it goes unrebuked. Well, you've brought us right to leadership, which is crucial. So we've got these 13. Uh, they're not the usual suspects. They rebel by wanting to vote for spending in their districts. The backlash is vicious and it comes in the form of violent threats, even death threats to the representatives, the 13, and their families. The big question is, where are the leadership in this? What stance have the leadership in the House taken? Have they defended these 13 for their right to vote their conscience uh, what's been the message from the top? The minority leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, who is vying to position himself to become Speaker of the House, um, which is very powerful if Republicans take back control of Congress next year. Kevin McCarthy has been very tepid in his condemnation of these other members making these um, very loaded comments against their colleagues. When you don't repudiate this type of bad behavior, it just empowers people to engage in it more and become even more outrageous. For example, you had Congressman Fred Upton, who was one of the Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill, receiving bone-chilling, threatening voicemails um, to his office, his family being threatened. An ugly time, a toxic time, and really unfortunate because it's not what, what we stand for as a democracy. We always have a difference of ideas, but these ideas should not be leading to violence. And Kevin McCarthy kind of shrugged it off. They're continuing to embolden bad behavior. Same thing with Paul Gosar, a Republican from Arizona. He put out this violent anime cartoon depicting himself killing another congresswoman, a Democrat, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and also depicting a attempted killing of the president of the United States. And he was reprimanded by the House, except that the Republicans overwhelmingly voted not to reprimand him. And Kevin McCarthy was leading that. When it was requested, I contacted the member. He took the video down. He put a statement that he does not believe in violence to anyone. But you see, when others on the other side of the aisle incite violence, it's okay to make excuses for it, to shrug it off and say that, oh, well, it's just a cartoon, it's political free speech. And really? I mean, this is insanity. You've rightly brought us to Paul Gosar and the contrast between Kevin McCarthy and the House leadership standing with Paul Gosar despite this blood-curdling cartoon depicting him killing, as you say, the cartoon version of him killing AOC, the contrast with McCarthy's position on that standing with Gosar Whereas not protecting, not defending those 13, that's brought a lot of discussion. But there's another contrast, isn't there? And that is when Congressman Steve King a couple of years ago was found to have made a whole lot of racist remarks, the Republican leadership just two years ago 
did actually, including Kevin McCarthy, did work to boot Steve King off the various committees that he was on. We do not believe in his language. And um, we've decided that he will not serve on any um, committees. In just two years, McCarthy is in a very different place now from where he was two years ago. And of course, I know McCarthy would say, oh, the issues, no two issues are the same, and this is very different. But it does feel as if the political temperature inside the party has shifted even in those two years. If that has happened, what do you put that down to? You're absolutely right about that. And Republicans had just lost control of the House at that point. Democrats had taken over after the 2018 midterm. And so there was a repudiation of Republicans. So they respond to that. So that was the climate at the time when Kevin McCarthy stood up and said, yeah, we support Steve King being removed from committees. This time around, even though Republicans lost the presidency, they actually gained seats in the House of Representatives last year in 2020. And they gained seats in the Senate where it's 50-50. So it's very close. And they, they're responding to the way that the Republican base is still so overwhelmingly supportive of the Donald Trump MAGA America First agenda. I mean, polling just last month in October shows that Donald Trump still has an 86% favorable rating within the Republican Party. That's the climate you're responding to. You see them responding to. They think that they have to continue to placate this very rabid extremist base because that's now the mainstream Republican Party, unfortunately. You'd have thought that if anything, over those two years, particularly because of the uh, January 6th insurrection attempt, there would be, on the contrary, a desire by Republicans to show that they were not scary and extremist and were not a party of violence. And yet, as you say, it's the exact opposite. They punished Steve King two years ago, did not punish Paul Gosar for that very violent video uh, this time. So if anything, they have hardened in their position. And the person at the center of that process, obviously Donald Trump. To explain to people, perhaps outside the United States, how they how they should understand this, because Donald Trump is not in the White House. He doesn't have, hold any political office, actually. He has his ha hands on no levers of political power. What is it that Republicans are so scared of? Republicans are, and I agree with you, the Republican Party is worse today, a year later, even after the insurrection, after Donald Trump perpetuating a big lie about election fraud, which didn't exist, which is so frightening to many of us who look at the threat that this poses to our democracy. Um, I spent 27 years in the Republican Party and never thought that we, I would see this day. Uh, which is why I made the decision to actually leave the party. But, you know, why? How have we gotten here? What is it about Donald Trump that scares the bejesus out of all of these Republican leaders? Well, a lot of this has to do with the right-wing media ecosystem here in the United States. So these people who are watching these news sources that just reconfirm their belief system or their biases are believing things that are not the reality. They're believing a lot of mistruths, and it has shaped their political viewpoint where they actually think that Donald Trump legitimately um, had an election stolen from him because they have a, me a media ecosystem that backs it up. 
And that feeds into Republican voters who the Republicans on Capitol Hill fear because they could, in those internal battles, those primaries, remove them from their jobs and deny them their seats. And so what you're describing there is a party of where the leaders are in fear of the followers. And the person at the centre of that that we've been talking a bit about is this figure of Kevin McCarthy. I know last week he broke a record for making the longest continuous House speech in modern history, speaking for some eight hours and 32 minutes. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I cannot believe the amount of control one party rule wants. They now want to dictate to a member of the floor of where I can look. And that was to derail the passing of Joe Biden's other big bill, not infrastructure, but what some calling social infrastructure, his big spending bill. Was that because McCarthy feels the heat that he needs to show those Republican voters who are watching Fox News and Newsmax and One American News that, yeah, he'll stand up to the Democrats. He's no soft touch. 100%. What Kevin McCarthy did last week was nothing but political kabuki theater. He knew that he couldn't stop the bill. Democrats control the House. But this was a way because Kevin McCarthy is so desperate to be Speaker of the House next year if Republicans take over that he's trying to demonstrate to not only the caucus within the House Republicans, but also to a party of one, the audience of one, which is Donald Trump. Because if Trump supports him, then he'll most likely be voted in as Speaker if they win. I've got news for Kevin McCarthy. He will never be Speaker of the House. Donald Trump has no respect for Kevin McCarthy. He could spin on his finger and, you know, produce golden eggs out of his behind, and it won't matter. Donald Trump is not going to support him because he looks at Kevin McCarthy as weak. Because Kevin McCarthy, in the beginning, right after the January 6th insurrection, he was begging Donald Trump to call off his supporters, and he didn't do it. Kevin McCarthy was not supportive of the uh, attempt to overturn the election initially. And he went to the floor at the time and spoke out against Donald Trump. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. And that lasted a couple of days. Because next thing you knew, Kevin McCarthy had flown down to Florida to Donald Trump's home there to make up for it. And ever since then, Trump has been making McCarthy pay and he's been trying to make up for it. And I'm telling you, it's not going to matter. Tara, Brian Klaus, a political analyst, wrote in the Washington Post, the conclusion is depressing, but we must face reality. The battle for the Republican Party is over. The Trumpian authoritarians have won, and they're not going to be defeated by pro-democracy Republicans any time soon. Now, you yourself made your own decision to leave the Republican Party, but what you're seeing now, is this a diversion and eventually the Republicans will come back to where they were? Or do you agree with what Brian Clark said there, that there is no way back, that they have become something completely different and will never revert back to the party they once were? Sadly, I do agree with Brian Kloss on that. I read that piece and I, I shook my head in affirmation because I understand completely where he's coming from. That's why I left the party a year ago. I stayed so long because I thought there would be an opportunity to bring the party back from the brink. I don't think that the party is redeemable in its current form. Unfortunately, there are not enough. There are some, a handful, uh, who are out there trying to make this point that we have to rebuild the party anew, away from Trumpism. But they are so few and far between and are not in any positions that you actually see Republican Party leadership chastising those vocal Republicans who still stood for traditional Republican establishment beliefs. When you have Liz Cheney, 
the daughter of Vice President Dick Cheney, who is the quintessential definition of a traditional Republican, being chastised by her own party in Wyoming, calling saying that she is no longer considered a Republican. That's all you need to know. That's a microcosm of where the Republicans are today. And I fear that, unfortunately, the party needs to be burned to the ground in order to start over because the internal rottenness of it is beyond repair. And do you think those 13 who rebelled, is that going to be the last such rebellion? Are all the others and the Senate and the House going to watch what's happened here and say, I'm never going to make that mistake? It's it's a warning shot. Absolute warning shot. You know, John Adams once said <laughs> that all great democracies eventually commit suicide. And I fear what we're seeing today is another step toward that if the American people do not say enough is enough and disempower the Republicans who seem to be so antithetical to what the American democratic experiment is based on. Tara, we always ask our guests a very brief what else question. This week, the other topic of, uh, of conversation in the United States is the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Donald Trump called him a nice young man after meeting him. Tucker Carlson had a sit-down interview with him. Florida Congressman Matt Gates has even said, oh, he would make a pretty good congressional intern. Kyle Rittenhouse in the news because acquitted the other day of murdering two men and wounding another during last year's uh, very racially charged protests in Wisconsin. He argued successfully that he used his assault weapon in self-defense. Why is Kyle Rittenhouse, then a teenager when all this happened, why has he become the poster boy for the Republican right? The Republicans' response to Kyle Rittenhouse is a microcosm of how far the party has fallen, which used to be the party of law and order. The fact that so many on the right have decided to make this kid a martyr, it's pretty despicable. But it's also indicative of where the Republican Party is today, where I talk about authoritarianism and glorifying violence. And imagine if Kyle Rittenhouse had been black. I don't think the response would be as embracing on the right. Tara Setmeyer, thank you so much for joining us once again on the podcast. My pleasure. And that is all from me for this week. It's been a while since I've asked you to get in touch, but we do always enjoy your feedback and questions, and I always like reading them. So do email us at podcasts at theguardian.com, or you can always contact me directly on Twitter. My handle there is at Friedland. But for now, I say goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. If you're marking the Thanksgiving weekend, have a very good one. And please stay safe out there. And thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.